Today, I was, uh, I was thinking, I'm like, I'm going to share this story, but um, please don't judge me as a parent, okay? Uh, I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm figuring things out. And as Sharon, like, often just laughs. She belly laughs in the office as she hears me, you know, talking about things with my family. My toddler has new molars coming in. And so for you parents who remember teething and all that stuff, you know, it's, it's lots of fun, right? He's constantly got his hands in his mouth, and I'm constantly pulling them out. Constantly. And because of that exchange, you know, he's going in, I'm pulling it out. He thinks we're playing a game. I'm not. I'm not playing. And, you know, I I try different ways to tell him not to do that and and why he shouldn't do that and all of this stuff. So my, my, my pep talk on germs just went like this, just just completely over his head. It made no sense for him. And all that elicits when I start talking about germs, he says, germs? Daddy, where? And he wants me to show him germs. And I'm like, how do I show a two-year-old germs? And the fact that he is putting a whole lot of them in his, you know, we're driving home. This, let me just tell you what kind of kid I have. We're driving home from school, and, and I'm, you know, trying to focus on keeping him alive and us alive as we drive down the road. And my son is taking off his shoes, and he's dropping things and asking me to pick him up. And, you know, I look in the rearview mirror, and there's my son licking the bottom of his shoe. Yeah, go teach him about germs, people. Germs, don't do that. You can't do that. But anyways, as that conversation meant nothing to my son and and germs being something totally outside of his purview, it reminded me of the story of a frustrated missionary son. Um, Mom would call down her son for dinner and she would say, hey, be sure to wash your hands, get the germs off. And to which the frustrated young boy would say, germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus is all I hear and I never see neither. Germs and Jesus. I never seen either. And this morning, as I was contemplating my son, contemplating that story, and just thinking about, you know, where we stand today, the Sunday after Resurrection Day, you know, I started thinking about this concept of doubt. How many of you have ever had a doubt before in your life? All right, and if you, uh, you know, did not answer that question, you're in doubt whether you want to be honest and transparent right now, so you didn't raise your hand. But we've all had different doubts throughout our lives. We've had, we have this tendency to second-guess ourselves. I, I don't know, maybe I'm, in, I'm all alone. Like, you know, should I have pitched that meeting in this way? Should I have presented this to my boss in this fashion? Man, should I have asked her in that way? Man, what, you know, should I have done this? Should I have done that? We all have different doubts and questions that we go through in our minds. There's different types of doubt. If you stop and you're honest and start thinking about it, you know, you could have just a few of these as an example. We doubt the future and we call it worry. We will doubt other people and we call that, you know, suspicion. We doubt so many different things. We doubt ourselves and we call it inferiority. We doubt everything and we call it skepticism. We doubt God and we call it uncertainty. There's so many different kinds of doubt and all of us have it. All of us experience it. But thankfully, Jesus recognized this tendency within us. He recognized it so much so that he decided that after his resurrection, after this incredible moment, the the, the moment that has incredible implications for our lives, the the, the pinnacle climax of Christianity, Jesus raising from the dead, he said, I got to stick around. 
I got to hang out here for a bit because, you know what, there, there's some doubt going on. There's some issues that I have to address. There's still some things that I need to teach. There is some change that needs to come. And so let me hang out. Let me wait around because change needs to come. So he stuck around because there was still some disciples who needed some transformation. So I want you to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, which is the fourth Gospel. I want you to take a look at chapter 20. I want us to open up in this story as we can learn a couple of different things. And as Jesus decided to tarry, it wasn't yet time for him to ascend into heaven and, and just go and be at the right hand of the Father. Yes, the work was finished. He paid for our sins. He accomplished it. But you know what? Some people did not, still did not know and hear the good news. Some of them were still living under the, the old day and the old guard and the old way. And so Jesus stuck around. If you're in John chapter 20, say amen. Amen. Starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, that is the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for this text of Scripture. I thank you, Lord God, that it's included there to teach us something, to lead us somewhere. And Lord God, to affect the change within us. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us today and lead us according to your grace and your will. Amen. Amen. As we examine this narrative and this story, there's a couple of things that I want to bring to your attention. I want to highlight as some critical lessons and some critical things that Jesus decided, it is not yet time for me to go up to heaven and be with my Father. It is not yet time for me to depart these disciples and to leave. There is still something for me to accomplish. I want to make sure that they understand that I'm going to wait and tarry so that they can experience some changes. And the first thing that I notice here is that Jesus transforms people from their fear into joy. Jesus had to wait so that people could exchange their fear for joy. As the disciples are hanging out in Jerusalem, Jesus had been laid in the tomb. He, he had died. He had been laid in the tomb. There, there was all the events of Good Friday and everything that we learn on the Easter season and we talk about. And yet now, three days later, Jesus rises up from the grave. It's the first day of the week. And he realizes that his disciples are still living under the old system. They're living in fear. They're living in doubt. They're living without faith. They're living in a space that they need some transformation. There's at least five resurrection appearances that's recorded on that first Sunday. Jesus appears to so many of his disciples. He appears to the ladies first, to Mary Magdalene. And to the other women that were with her. He appears also to uh, uh, the disciples. He appears to the two disciples that were on the Emmaus Road. He appears to Thomas. He appears to John. He appears to all these different people. He's going to appear on that first Resurrection Sunday. The Bible says that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked. And they were afraid. 
So I want you to stop and think about this. In light of the reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead, there's disciples who are living in fear. They said, whoa, wait, hold on, my master, the one we've walked with for three years, this Jesus whom we followed, we've been with, we've, we've, we've journeyed with, we've been taught by, and look at what happened to him on Friday. All of these religious leaders who hated him, who were opposing him, they killed him. They had a mock trial for him. They abused him. They, they put him in the grave. And so we, his followers, how could we feel like we would be excluded from possibly experiencing the same fate? Instead of being out there and going and doing, remembering the words of Jesus Christ, these men and these women have gone into the upper room and they've gone back and they're afraid. They're afraid of finding the same outcome for their lives, the same results for them. They're afraid and they're hanging out. And so Jesus, realizing that, he shows up and you know, I wonder, are they also afraid because of the fact that they know that Jesus said he would come back? And they're afraid if he does, in fact, you know, maybe there's that inkling within them that thinks, if he does, in fact, come, is he going to berate us and, and, and chide us because we have walked away? We have, you know, rejected him, denied him. We were not there. Maybe John, the apostle, is the only one that's hanging out and saying, but I was at the cross. Y'all don't know where y'all went, but I was there. He committed his mother unto me, and he said, behold your mother and son, be, and mother, behold your son. And, you know, I was there, guys, I don't know about y'all, but are they afraid that he was going to berate them? Whatever it is that they're afraid of, whether the, the, the people were going to, you know, hurt them and persecute them, or Jesus was going to show up and Jesus was going to berate them, or whatever it is that they're afraid of, let me just say this, they were afraid, and I know what it means to be afraid. Anybody here witness with me that fear is real and that sometimes it grips us and it, does, it makes us do things that we would not do in our right mind? It makes us believe things that are not their fear, the uh, false evidence appearing real. That's what it is, and it causes us to do some things. And so these disciples are locked away in a room. And so in that moment, on that first day, all of a sudden, rooms are locked. They're not expecting a thing. All of a sudden, Jesus says, hello, guys, peace to you. Do not be afraid. He shows up out of nowhere. And uh, that in itself would make me afraid. The doors are locked. There's no way in. There was no knock. No one opened the door. No one jumped in through a window. It is completely lockdown mode. And all of a sudden, we look around, and there's Jesus hanging out. Uh, scary. I don't know about you. You might be of the super hyper faith folks. You're super awesome. In, in the, you've, you've been with the Lord a long time. And so you would be all gung-ho and excited, jumping on him, hugging and, and fired up. I would be like, uh, is that a ghost? What's going on here? What's happening here? And so Jesus shows up, and I find it remarkable the fact that he shows up in that place where Jesus is alive, they are afraid, and Jesus just shows up. And the first thing that he says, he says, shalom, peace, shalom, peace be with you. 
Peace of God be with you. Jesus could have rebuked them. He could have chided them. He could have said to them, guys, hey, all right, now I'm going to have my little moment of setting you straight. I'm going to now replay the tape, and I'm going to rewatch every one of you guys letting me down. Jesus shows up, and the first thing he says to all of them, he says, peace. I just find it incredible that my Lord, my Savior, decided to hang out in Jerusalem after his resurrection. He did not go up to the Father because he needed to meet people in the middle of their fears. And that is encouraging to me because God met me in the middle of my fear. God came into my life in a place where I was afraid that I would never amount to anything and I would never have a future. He came into my life in a time and a season where I thought that I had no hope for a family, that I would not have you know, the dreams that I, that I dreamt of having and that I would, would, would amount to something that, that I had purpose and value in a place where I was afraid of where my future lied and what would happen and, and who I could become and, and what, that God actually had a plan for my life. I was afraid in that moment is where I met the Lord and he says hey let me just talk to you in the middle of your fear he didn't come to me saying to me Brian this is why you are in the place you are in this is why you're living what you're living because you have not listened to my word you have walked away from the faith you have chosen not to listen to wise counsel that's why your family is in the state that it's in right now no God showed up in the middle of my fear and he said peace with you Has anybody here ever experienced a God of peace coming into their circumstance? That when you had no answer and things were broken and things were not running the way it should run or or living up to your expectations in the middle of your uncertainty and all of that chaos, God shows up and he says, peace to you. I praise God that he's a God that loves us so much to meet us inside of our fears. And so he shows up to the disciples and he says, hey guys, I'm right here. Don't be afraid. I am alive. Come here, touch, see me, handle me. Look at the side where I was pierced. Look at the nail-scarred hands. You guys were afraid that this was going to take me out and keep me in the grave. I am alive and well and your fear is misguided false evidence appearing real. That is what fear is. And so Jesus says, let me set the set record straight and let me show you I am truly the one that can take your fear away. So be at peace. Jesus appeared to the disciples. They saw for themselves that he was indeed alive. And in that moment, their fear was transformed to joy. It says that they were glad. They were glad. In the middle of our fears, God can turn that circumstance around. And he can make us happy when we were, in fact, filled with terror. He, in that moment, I imagine, these guys have walked with him. They have been with him. It tells us that when Mary saw him, when Mary went to that tomb, and she got to that place, and she was, you know, thinking that his body was stolen, and she talked to the man that was in there, and she thought it was the gardener, and all of a sudden, he says, Mary. He says her name, and she recognizes that voice. Why? Because the Bible tells us, my sheep know my voice. They recognize my voice. I know my sheep, and they know my voice. When he said that, it tells us that she clung to his feet, and she would not stop holding him to the point that Jesus says, hey, let go. 
Get off of me, for I have not ascended. Meaning, I have not gone to my Father. I got to hang out here for a little bit. I got things I need to do. I got people I need to encourage. I got some fear I need to dispel. So go and tell the disciples I'm going to meet them, and I'm going to be there with them, and we're going to have a a, a meeting. We're going to hang out. We're going to chat. We're going to have some food. And it's all that great stuff. Jesus comes, and he brings joy inside of our fear. But secondly, as I look at this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus on that Easter, not only does he come to bring, you know, joy for our fear, but Jesus comes to bring faith where we used to have doubt. Look with me at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see with his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in his side, and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. All right? You ever said something to God and, and, and uh, he brings that back around later on? Um, remember in, in Bible school, the, the professor one time said, you know, you should be careful what you say to the Lord. You be careful what you say, I never want to, I never will, or this and that, because the Lord has a very interesting sense of humor. You know, so uh, I remember one missionary saying, I will never go, uh, God, I'll serve you. I'll go wherever you want me to go, but just don't send me to this country. I don't want to go there. And that happens to be the place where they end up serving their entire ministry and life. And God does incredible things in their lives through their willingness to go and be obedient. Uh, Unless if I touch his nail-pierced hands, unless if I put my hand through his side, I will not believe. And so eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them this time. We don't know why he wasn't there the first time around, but although the doors were locked, again, they locked the doors. These guys are still in the place where they're, you know, trying to figure this all out. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, hey, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It's so unfortunate that Thomas gets this rap for being a doubting disciple. Have you ever heard that expression, doubting Thomas? You're such a doubting Thomas. You're a negative Nelly. You're, 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 you're a nervous Nancy. You know, all these different uh, idioms and sayings. Thomas is known to be a doubting disciple, a doubting Thomas. Yet I find it interesting that Thomas is one of the disciples that had some incredible things to say within the Bible. This one moment where he is saying, I need to touch it, I need to put my hand in, becomes the one defining moment that, that, that dictates that he is a doubting disciple. Where it was Thomas that just in John chapter 11, when Jesus had heard the news that Lazarus was sick, when the news came to him that Lazarus was dying, and, and the sisters had called, Jesus, please come, please pray over my brother, please heal our brother. It was Jesus' decision at that moment to say, no, we're going to hang out here because this is not going to result in death, but he is is going to die. It won't result in death and won't stay that way, but Lazarus is going to die. And we're going to get there after that happens. And in that moment, Jesus says, we're going to tarry. And then after two days, he says, all right, guys, let's pack it up. Let's go to Bethany. We're going to go and, and pray over Lazarus. We're going to go see Lazarus. To which his disciples say, hey, Jesus, we just left Jerusalem. We just left that vicinity. And over there, everybody wants to kill you. Jesus, every day, every, people were trying to stone you last time we were there. 
So if we go there, we're in danger, Jesus. We, we, we should not go to that space. We shouldn't go back to that place. And in that moment, out of all the 12 disciples, it was Thomas who says, let us go with him so that we too may die. Oh, that's a doubting Thomas, huh? Let us go with him so that we too may die with him. See, Thomas was a devoted follower of Jesus. He was a disciple that was bold and courageous. He was a disciple that when everybody else was thinking that they are going to die, he's the one that says, yes, let's go do it. Because we are committed to this man. We believe in his words. We have seen the words. It is Thomas who, when Jesus is teaching in his last moments, Jesus teaches them and says, hey, where I go, you can't follow me. I need to go to my father. And it is Thomas who asks the question, Lord, how can we follow you if we do not know where you're going? It is to Thomas that Jesus reveals, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and none will come to the father unless through me. See, Thomas is a man that is so devoted in following Jesus, so excited to be there with the, the Lord, that wants to lay down his life with him. And yet, because this one moment when he says, hey, if I don't touch the nail-pierced hand, if I don't put my hand in the side, I will not believe. See, is it fair for us to judge him and doubt him? Is it fair for us to say, hey, oh, Thomas, such a doubter. Uh, hello, last time I checked, there's so many things I doubt. Last time I checked, there's lots of things that I'm asking God, how can this be? How is this going to happen? How is this going to unfold? Lord, I don't know. I need to come up with plan A and plan B and plan C just in case plan A doesn't fall through. You know, how can we chide Thomas when Thomas is the one that was ready to die with Christ? He was the one that was asking these questions because I truly want to believe and I truly want to follow. See, wasn't it the reality that when the women showed up from the grave, and they said, hey, he's alive. We have seen him. He's alive. Uh, what did Peter and John do? What did the other disciples do? Oh, that is great news. Swell. That's awesome. We are excited and fired up now, and this is great. They started wondering, what is this all about? Peter and John get in a race, and they run to the tomb, and they're trying to figure out, is, he tr is it true? Are, are they, yeah, and it tells us that John walked away pondering and thinking about those things. He didn't leave the tomb and say, hallelujah, he's risen. He left there considering those things. And so Jesus shows up that evening on that first Easter Sunday, and he tells the disciples, Thomas excluded because he wasn't there, touch my hands, feel my side. Give me some food to eat. Notice, it is my body. It is I, the one that bear the marks of your salvation, the one that purchased for you freedom, the one who accomplished that, my body broken for you so that you could be made alive. It is me. I want you to touch it, feel it, and seal it. Is it fair that we judge Thomas for asking for the same thing that the other disciples experienced? See, what Jesus is highlighting in this moment, I, I believe that if he could orchestrate all the details and fulfill all the prophecies and, and, and experience all the wonderful promises that were spoken about him and make it happen, things that he, you know, where he would be born. Like, how can you control where you're born? Yet Jesus was born exactly where the Old Testament told us he would be born. Jesus fulfilled so many, there's over 300 plus prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. If he can fulfill all of that, don't you believe that Jesus could have made sure that 11 disciples were all together 
in the upper room on that first night of Easter so that he would not have to come back another time and tell Thomas to come feel me and see me. I believe that Jesus on purpose decided not to have them there, orchestrated something that brought Thomas away so that he was not there that first night and he could be back this another night because of this. Some of us look at Thomas and we judge him saying that we should not have doubts. See, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Disbelief is. See, doubt is okay if we take our doubts to the Lord. Jesus wanted us to see the story. Why? Because Thomas is not asking for anything special or crazy here. What he's asking for is this. I don't want to have faith based on someone else's words. I want to experience it for myself. See, Thomas did not want to live his life apart from the other disciples who had this life-changing, life-altering encounter with Jesus Christ post-resurrection. He wanted the same experience for themselves. They got it. I want it as well. And I believe, church, that the lesson for us is this, that we should not live off of someone else's words. We should not live off of someone else's experiences, but we should live off of an encounter that is personal and true and intimate for ourselves with the Lord. That is what God wants for us. We're not going to go into heaven riding on our mama's coattails. We're not going to go in riding on our pastor's words. We're going to go in based on the merit of our relationship with the Lord. And so Thomas is there that moment that day, and he says, unless if I believe it is an encouragement for you and I, to say, unless if I touch the hem of his garments, unless if I experience him alive and well, unless if I get to hear his voice and see him and what he's done in my life, I will not believe. That is a fair thing to say and ask. So I'm not going to judge Thomas any longer. I'm not going to call him a doubting Thomas. I'm going to call him a man filled with faith who was wanting an experience for himself. It reminds me of the blind man that Jesus healed when they were asking and questioning him, why were you healed? Who healed you on the Sabbath? It's illegal to do that. And this man says to him, hey guys, I I don't know who he was, what his name was, and all these things that you're going into, and why it was good or bad or wrong or indifferent, but let me just tell you this. I can tell you I used to be blind. And now I can see. I used to be blind. I could not see. And now I can. I don't know his name, but I encountered a man that healed me of my blindness. And Thomas is saying, I want to know the man that has been raised from the dead. And I want to know him for myself. Have you met the risen, resurrected Jesus? Has he taken your doubts and brought it into a place of faith? See, Dr. Oswald Sanders said this. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. Could Thomas be thinking and saying, God, I want this for myself? Now, stop and think about this. If Thomas didn't get the same experience as the other disciples, there would have been all the disciples who went off to do the mission of the, of, of the church, to, to accomplish the plans of Jesus. And yet there would have been one among them that would not have firsthand experience with the resurrection of Christ. What kind of doubt do you think that would have sowed into the church? What kind of, of, of cracks in the foundation could that have you know, opened up for critics and, 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 and um, those who are uh, hostile towards the faith? But the fact that Jesus says, hey, I'm going to hang out and I'm going to wait. Why? Because I need to transform doubt into faith. When Thomas sees Jesus, read your Bible again. Check it out. What does it say? He goes full force. He jumps right in. Hey, Jesus, I wanted to put my finger. I'm putting my whole fist in because I want to figure out, does it actually fit? How big is it? 
The Bible never tells us that Thomas actually touched Jesus and actually went in and put his hand there. Why? Because the minute he saw his resurrected Lord, one glance, one look at the risen Jesus was all he needed. And what he said, my Lord and my God. See, the gospel of John starts off with John saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And now it ends at the last pages of the gospel of John. John's come full circle and where he started with the word was God. Now he says, Jesus, my God and my Lord. There is no other disciple that called Jesus God. Is he a doubting man? No, he's a man filled with faith. Why? Because God wants to take our doubts and convert them into faith. I wonder if you've never doubted something, have you actually truly believed what you say you believe? Could it be that this man is only thinking? So church, I invite you to think about this. As as these guys are hanging out in this locked room. Jesus shows up to change their fears into joy, and he comes in that moment. What joy must have flooded Thomas as he starts picturing the crucifixion and, 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 and the torture of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the fact that he was put into a tomb, and now that he's actually alive within him as emotions surge within him, and he's excited of what this means and the implications for his life, and the fact that this God, instead of ri- raising, uh, rising up into heaven and ascending, he decided to stick around so he could talk to this man who was still having some doubts because God cares enough to meet us at our fears and he cares enough to meet us in our doubts. So if you've got a doubt, will you take it to Jesus? If you've got a doubt, will you take it to the one who can do something about it? And lastly, as I see here, that is super comforting, is the fact that he came to change fears into joy, doubt into faith, but Jesus also came in to transform death into life. The third thing that Jesus does is he transforms death into life. The Bible is very clear that every person who is not saved does not have joy, does not have faith, does not have eternal life. And in fact, when God looks at their hearts, he sees in them fear, doubt, eternal death. So the gospel goes on to tell us that there is something more that Jesus came to do. The Apostle John could not end his gospel without bringing the resurrection full circle and bringing it back into his reader's eyes and attention. He wanted us to know that we must not look at Thomas and the other disciples and envy them because they got to see Jesus and see Christ and and they have that moment with him and they get to put their finger there and their their hand there and figure things out and and all of that. We're not to look at them with envy, but we're to look at them and see the incredible beauty of what Jesus is doing. He's transforming something here and bringing a new reality into place. That was the fact why John wrote in his gospel. He said, verse 31, He said that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus came to offer us life. He didn't come to just make us better. He didn't come just to give us some nice little uh, quotes and, and some nice little things to post on our refrigerator mag- uh, you know, magnets and, and all of these things. He, he, he came to give us a new way of life and to give us life itself. Jesus offered us abundant and eternal life. And so the question is, how do we receive it? How do we receive this life that he came to bring? How do we go from a place of death to a place of life and transformation? What do we do? John tells us a lot. 
He tells us so much within his gospel that a person's life can be transformed from fear to joy and doubt to faith and death to life and it can be done as we choose to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the risen King, the one who was and is and will forever be, the eternal right hand of the Father, the one who has the power to to break the seals and to to bring about the, the, the plans of God. It is he who John wrote about. He wrote to tell us that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is the way, the truth, of the life, that he is the gate, that he is the life, that he is the bread, that he is the light, that he is the good shepherd. He is everything that we have searched for and longed for, and everything that we need is found within him because in him and through him we have our being, and all things have their being. He is the one that is the Savior. He's the one that can reconcile us from our sins. He's the one that made a way where there was no way. He's the one that alone can give us eternal life. And he declared that to Thomas. So how does Jesus take a person to heaven? How does he take a person from death to life? How does he give them an eternal assurance and security? John tells us that we must believe in Jesus. But how do you believe in him? See, there's so much that the Bible tells us about belief, and I'll wrap it up with this. The worship team can come and, and get, get back up here. We'll, we'll worship God together in just a little bit. But John tells us in his scriptures, he tells us in his gospel, that there's so many different kinds of belief. We can learn, we can understand, and we can ascribe our faith to God. There's intellectual faith, there's intellectual belief where we can amass some facts. We can learn about some things and we can know details and, and we can say, I, I, I believe in that and I, I, I have that within my grasp. I can understand that. I believe that Jesus was born a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he uh, came and he was suffered and he died on the cross, a sinless life. I believe that he was buried. I believe that he was raised to life. I believe that all of these things happened I have an intellectual ascent on these facts, and so I have amassed those. I can, I can tell you that in Bible trivia. I can quote to you scriptures. I believe that. I know that. But James 2.19 says this, that the devils have this kind of faith as well. It tells us that they know that because they saw Jesus be born. They saw Jesus live a perfect, sinless life. They, they, they were paying attention when Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted of the devil, they knew that Jesus resisted. They could quote to you the scriptures he spoke. See, they knew that Jesus was being tortured by the Romans and he was erected on that cross to die. They knew the very moment, an hour, second, millisecond where Jesus breathed his last. They were watching. See, they know. They have intellectual assent of that. They believe that. Oh, and they for sure believe that he rose from the dead because they realized that he came down and he took away the keys of life and death when that moment when he raised from the grave. They know, they believe, they see, but let me ask you, do the devils have faith? Will these devils be found in heaven? Absolutely not. Why? Because they only have intellectual ascension. They only have intellectual knowledge. They only have facts and figures, but they do not have faith that believes and aligns 
and follows and obeys. See, belief is not just having something within your mind, but it's having it deeply rooted within your heart and saying, I will align myself and I will move my life and orchestrate my, the details of my being so that this is actually played out and manifested within my heart and my life and my testimony and my family and my community. Faith that believes. All of this, as John writes, has been written. So many more could have been written. So many more things did he do. But all of this has been written so that you may believe. So that you may obey. So that you may follow. So that you may demonstrate your love. Faith is us acting out that which we believe. And so Jesus, through the words of the gospel writer John, God, through the words of his humble servant, decides to have these words penned and written, recorded. He decides to linger and stay within the city, within this earth for a few more days because there's some disciples who need to go from fear into joy, doubt into faith, and death into life. This morning, I wonder, do we have that intellectual ascent? Yeah, Easter was last week. We celebrated that. Easter was, oh, eight days before this moment that he's having an encounter with Thomas. Easter was all that. But has the reality of Easter already worn off? Are you tired? Are you discouraged? Are you in fear? Are you in doubt? Are you now living in death again? Have you gone back to your old ways? And are you living in a place where you're not experiencing the joy of Christ, the faith of God, and the incredible life-giving, transforming power that he has redeemed us with? Are you not experiencing that today? eight days removed from Easter. I want you to stand with me as we contemplate this question. There was a famous theologian who came up to a young boy as he saw him flying a, clou- a kite on a cloudy day. This little boy is just, you know, deep in thought and he's having a blast. But as a theologian looks up and he looks at that string that's coming out from the kid's hands on that spool, he looks up into the sky and he doesn't see a kite in sight. It's just cloudy. All he sees is the clouds. And he asks the little boy, how do you know that it's there? I can't see it. And the little boy says to him, I can feel the tug of it. I can feel the tug of it on my hand. And so as he's going back to his college and he's teaching, not long afterwards, someone asks this professor, this theologian, why do you believe in God in the spiritual reality of life? And the professor, thinking back on that little boy, he says, because I can feel the tug of him on my heart. I can feel the tug of him coming to me in the middle of my fears. I can feel him tugging at me when I'm living in doubt and fear. I can feel the tug of him when I am so bound in my brokenness, in my loss, in my death. And I can feel the tug of him beckoning me forth saying, I want to take you out of the muck and the mire and I want to place you on a solid rock because I have come that you will be transformed. I can feel the tug of him. This morning I wonder, and I want to challenge you, 
Ask yourself, what doubts are you wrestling with right now? What fears are you wrestling with right now? What habits of death are you engaged in right now that you just need the master to linger a little longer in your life and come and meet you in the middle of your need? What is it that you have believed? Fear is the false evidence appearing real. Jesus is here to say, hey, it's just noise. It's not true. Doubt is an avenue for you to just say, hey, Lord, it's not that I don't want to believe. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, until I have evidence, I will not believe. Doubt says, despite the, uh, unbelief says, despite the evidence, I will not believe. And if you have doubt and you just want some evidence, oh, he is good, he is faithful, he is ready to just answer your questions. I wonder, how are we dealing with those around us who have questions? I pray that this place becomes a place where you have the complete authority and autonomy, you have the complete uh, open way to ask whatever questions you have and not feel judged for asking them. Why? Because we all have doubts in times and that doubt can be the propeller, it could be the road, it could be the, the catapult to take us into a place of faith. And so do not discourage the questions within your home. Do not discourage the questions within your family and the, the ones that you are looking at who are new believers who, who don't even understand what they're believing or saying and yet they have questions do not discourage their doubt their fear their question why because God can meet them in that need and transform them to a place of life close your eyes with me I just want you to make this a personal moment the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has embedded eternity in man's heart there's this tug that's happening within our heart that we may not articulate or know how to explain it or say it or put words to it. But there's, there's a desire for eternity. There's a desire for knowledge of God, for, for, for relationship with Him that's embedded within our hearts. Whatever fear you have that has impeded you from coming and, and recognizing that tug, Whatever doubt you have that has blocked you from, from saying yes to the tuggings of Christ. Whatever has banned you and blocked you from experiencing life abundant as he has promised. Can you just say today, I don't need to bring it up to pastor. I don't need to bring it up to, to somebody within this church. But, but I'm going to come and I'm going to come to Jesus and pray over this. I want to present this to God. And Lord, as you were faithful to return for Thomas, can you come back and speak to me, minister to me in my doubt, in my fear, in my moment of death, my brokenness? Will you just be honest? Will you be courageous? Will you just say, Lord, please speak into this for me? I want to know you, not know about you. I want to know you. And if that's you today, you're at a place where you feel like I have not known the Lord. I have not truly lived out my life and aligned myself with him. 
I want to experience life and life eternal. I want to go, as Jesus said to Thomas, where I go, I go prepare a place for you. I want that place for me. I want to live in life and liberty and freedom. I don't want to live under fear and doubt. I want to live with faith and joy. I want to have life. If that's you today, I just want you to say this simple prayer with me. Just repeat this after me, and it's going to start you on a journey. It's not going to make your life drastically different this moment, although everything will be different. It starts a journey for you. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you came to this world. You lived a sinless life. You died a sinless death for me. But you didn't stay in the grave. You rose on the third day so that I could have life. I need you. Come into my life. Help me live for you in your precious name. Amen. Can we just praise God right now for a moment? If you pray that prayer for the first time, I want to invite you to just say something to me, to someone online, speak to one of our pastors, and and I pray that you would just be encouraged as you launch out into a new journey. Whatever it is that you might be afraid of, whatever it is that you might be in doubt of, whatever it is that you feel is broken, I praise God that he is not just in heaven, but that through his Holy Spirit, he is here. And he meets you exactly where you are. May the love of God, may the grace of our Lord, may the fellowship and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go from this place. These altars are open if you need prayer. May God bless you and fill you with incredible courage. Have a wonderful week.